You're listening to The Fully Occupied Show, presented by Occupier. Hey everyone, Matt from Occupier here. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to another episode of the Fully Occupied Podcast. If you enjoy the show, make sure you subscribe on your favorite listening platform or just shoot us a note at marketing at occupier.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on future guests, topics you'd like to hear about, ask us any questions you have, or just say hi. Enjoy the show. Jeff, welcome to the Fully Occupied Show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, certainly our distinct pleasure. Um, appreciate you uh, carving out some time for us. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll let you introduce yourself, uh, but we're joined by uh, Jeff Hernandez, the CEO and founder of BlackRock Coffee Bar. Uh, yeah, yes. Um, my name is, yeah, like you said, you know, Jeff Hernandez. I, um, I'm one of the, the co-founders of, of a company called BlackRock Coffee Bar. We're a West Coast-based, you know, regional coffee chain. At this point, we were in, um, you know, we're, we serve seven states. Um, we started out uh, in Portland, Oregon, and uh, kind of have grown from there. Um, yeah, and at this point, I uh, spent about ten years as CEO um, with, um, and we're myself along with my partner Daniel Brand, who's our uh, COO kind of grew this company as best we could. And I've recently been able to kind of shift over and take on a little bit of a different role into the role of executive chairman, actually, and pass off the day-to-day stuff to uh, our new CEO and uh, puts me in a different place. But yeah, that's, that's kind of who I am. And Awesome. So we, we can get into that a little bit later about like what your uh, change in, in shift in responsibilities in, but um, it would be great for our listeners to just kind of understand the origin story of BlackRock and kind of what, what drew your interest into that business, what your previous experience was and, and how it all came together. Sure. The way this all began is I was actually doing, I was working for my dad's construction company. My dad had kind of a midsize commercial construction company uh, down in Southern Oregon. And um, I kind of, you know, gone up the ranks from being a parts runner where I would just drive around to each building site and pick up, you know, this, this foreman needs these tools, this foreman needs this, you know, set of supplies from the store. And then I went up to uh, just a laborer where I would, you know, be the one swinging the hammer and doing the work and then up to kind of a junior um, project manager, and then also uh, the safety manager for this company. Um, and I loved construction. It was a ton of fun. I loved the ability. I, I love the fact that every day you'd, you'd go to work and at the end of the day, you could see, oh, I've made some progress. You know, that we poured that footing today. Right. We poured that concrete floor today. We, um, you know, put up this frame of the building. And then, you know, at the end of several months, there you are. You've got a building that, you know, is going to exist there for 30, 40, 50, 100 years, maybe. So, it was a lot of fun. It was, it's also so logical, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, obviously people pay, um, I will pay, I will pay you X amount 
per square foot for you to build me this building, you know, and it's very just cut and dried and completely absent of emotion. And it's just, I'm, you know, this is what you get for this amount of dollars and it's all about executions. And it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, but one of the things that I did not like about it was the, uh, I mean, I, I think it's the liability or maybe it was my perception of liability because I'm in my mid twenties, like 25 years old, I guess. And I'm the safety officer for this company and trying to kind of figure out how to be a good leader and a good project manager at the same time, trying to keep everyone safe. And I remember being on this one project and it was a huge project. It was 180,000 square feet, uh, a big manufacturing facility. And so there's like 250 uh, workers on this job. And it was the day that we were actually charging. Uh, it's, it's called charging the ammo- ammonia lines. And um, this was for their cooling system of this new building. And, and, and you know, it was like, we're going to charge this ammonia system and hopefully everything goes well and we're doing everything we can to keep everyone safe. But, you know, in the worst case, obviously, these are all the things that can go wrong. And it was very stressful. It's like, I mean, and it was very bad stuff. It was like, you know, uh, everyone's going to the hospital, possibly dying, you know, and I'm just looking at all these people and not only just on the safety aspect, but also just as a being in construction, you know, it's like you've got to watch out for OSHA that you're again, keeping everyone safe, but not only that, but if that, if, if that one steel worker did not tighten that bolt correctly. And 10 years later, the entire floor comes down and people get hurt. Then that comes back on us. You know, that liability is huge. So I think that started me down the road personally of just wanting to find something different, like something that just had a little different feel and less of that kind of daily weight of, you know, liability of just always having that, that kind of high stress worry of what can happen at any given day that really wasn't even in my control or anyone else's, you know, full control. So um, at the same time, my uh, some other members of my family um, and really family by marriage were also kind of going down similar paths. Um, My partner, uh, Daniel, um, like I mentioned earlier, our COO, um, their family actually owned this little coffee shop up in um, up in a neighborhood in East Medford, Oregon. And they were doing, you know, 400 pounds a week and they were doing some wholesale and just this one little coffee shop. It was popular, but it was, it could only ever be what it was, which was just this little tiny neighborhood coffee shop. And they had bigger dreams for that. And then also my, uh, my, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother and, um, and my father-in-law, they also were thinking about doing coffee. They wanted to go down to California. And so, you know, I wanted to actually come over here to where I currently live, which is Bend, Oregon. It's a beautiful mountain town. It's a beautiful place. Um, we've got Mount Bachelor, which is one of the top um, ski resorts in the country. Um, great food, more breweries per capita than any other place in the country. It's a, it's a great place to be. So, Sounds like yeah, paradise. it's pretty much paradise, uh, especially if, if you, yeah, if you enjoy the outdoors and if, like I said, breweries and just outdoor activities, non-pandemic, of course, but um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I've all, I had that dream of, of uh, so what, what I guess what started to form in me then was a dream of, man, I, I do love this construction thing, but I think that I want to go and maybe explore something a little different, something a little easier. And I love the idea of coffee for a couple of reasons. And one of the reasons was, you know, there's not a lot that can go wrong in making coffee. And, you know, at worst case, if you someone gets the wrong drink or, you know, something like that, you know, they're going to come back through and 
hey, I didn't get my coffee. And it's like, oh, good. Here's another one. We'll make there you, another you go. One. <laughs> and that's about the most amount of liability, you know, that I kind of had. And I really loved that idea. I don't know why that stuck, sticks out as such a big motivator for me, but man, it, it just, it just felt great. And that also, I think I was attracted to what I would probably call the the psychological or the emotional element of coffee. It was just, there was a happy feeling to it all. Like I said, construction is so by the book and just very kind of drive emotion and just, you know, this is just kind of like logically and factually how you go through the day every day. And coffee just had that other feeling. And I could tell that even back then of just, man, this is just fun. Like there's like everyone is happy to come through and get their daily coffee. Like they, that is a bright spot in their day. And it's, uh, and to be a part of that every day is just, it's fun. It just raises your, your attitude and everything you're a part of. So for those two reasons, I was looking at coffee. Like I mentioned, my other family members were, and this is kind of the interesting part that set up BlackRock for, for a really weird um, kind of growth story. And uh, so I was looking to come over here to Bend. Like I said, my, my brother-in-law, Ryan and John, my brother-in-law, Ryan and my father-in-law, John, they were looking to go down to California to start a coffee shop. My brother-in-law, Daniel and his dad, they were looking to go up to Beaverton, Oregon. So we were all kind of talking about coffee. And then what, what ended up coming up was we were not going to be affiliated at all. We just happened to all be kind of talking about coffee. We we weren't crazy enough to think that we should ever partner up because that would be nuts. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we all started kind of down our road of looking for sites and doing that kind of thing. And again, this is 2006 ish. <clears throat> and one of the first things we came up against was, you know, <clears throat> pardon me. One of the first things that we came up against was when you go to get your first batch of cups printed, you know, you, cause you want to start out with that right image. You want to start out with, yeah, we don't have white cups. We have our, you know, our name is on the cup. We're a real business, uh, especially day one. Right. But you know, that first run of cups is 30, $35,000. And uh, that's a lot of money. And that kind of got, you know, me thinking of like, Oh wow. You know, so I'm spending 30, they're spending 30 there, you know, everybody's spending a lot of money on this. Well, what if we came up with this crazy kind of dummy company, if you will, where we, we wouldn't, of course, you know, do anything together, but we could maybe form this company where we could share a name and we could share a lot of economies of scale as far as, you know, branding material and marketing dollars and all this stuff. And, you know, we'll just come up with this, this name and, and all own, a, every family will own a third of it and, you know, but we'll all be fine. And so again, this is 2006, there's just, everyone's trucking and money is flowing and, you know, there's just no sign of what is coming in the economic downturn. Right. And so that's kind of what got us. That's actually how BlackRock really started uh, in that way. It was like, yeah, let's do this. And everybody liked the idea. And so um, we all, we all formed this little company at each, each father, son unit, if you will, owned 33% of this little dummy company that had a name, but we were all on our way to go and open two or three or four stores in each location and have a nice quiet life and never really worry about it. And so, you know, fast forward then um, about to 2000 and, you know, 2007, late 2007, we're, we're signing our leases. It was actually probably the summer of 2007. We're signing our leases. We finally have got some sites. We've got a name. We've got a logo picked out. Everything's trucking along. And, you know, then late 2007 starts coming. And, you know, if you look back, that's when, you know, the stock market, I think, dropped in October of that year. And, like, everything started crumbling, you know, 
in late 2007. Yeah. I mean, and it was, it was just a free fall in a very dark time. And then 2000, February of 2008, we opened our first store. And then one week later, we opened our second store. And then, and, and when I say we is actually, again, interesting because we, never had planned on being one company, you know, the, the brands, Daniel and his dad opened that first store up there in Beaverton. Then, um, we actually, I actually partnered with my other brother-in-law, Ryan, and we'd opened the Medford store. And so we started opening our little stores, but they were all independently owned. They just shared a different, different yeah, brands exactly, yeah. in different places. And, and immediately, obviously we're opening this business into, probably the worst headwind that any of us have seen in our lifetime in the last 80 years. And so, you know, really quickly, it was survival mode. It was just, um, how can we survive this? And what compounded that feeling of just, you know, massive headwind, imminent failure, honestly, was the fact that our, our dads, you know, I believed in us enough to put some money into the business to get it going in the first place. Um, but then their businesses also, were hanging in the balance. I mean, really quickly thereafter. So, you know, our dads were all entrepreneurs as well. They had put money into these into our, our fledgling little business, but then their businesses were also hanging in the, in the, in the balance of were they going to make it or not? So um, we're just trying to survive, trying to decide what to do. This is, you know, mid 2008. And then uh, we get these, couple of people that came to us and said, Hey, you know, we made a lot of money in the housing boom. We don't have anything to do with it. Now you guys look like you've got a great concept, even though you've only got two stores open, we'd love to franchise. And we were crazy enough and, you know, probably desperate enough that we said, yeah, sure. I guess that works. Let's, yeah, let's, let's franchise <laughs> to survive. So yeah, then to kind of to skip forward. So the, the first stores were all in Oregon from from the year 2008 and to the year about 2012 you know we we got about five or we got let's see so from the years 2008 to 2012 we opened our first 12 stores so it took quite a while in those first five years i mean it was super slow growth it was super painful i mean there were there were times where my partner daniel who is who's kind of our heart and soul on the ground. Daniel's the guy who he worked in the stores for eight years and he's the lifeblood of, of what I would call our black rock culture. He's the one who um, embodied that, uh, that black rock heart and soul. And he, what I like to say about him is he, he will outwork anyone, but he'll have a lot more fun doing it. And that's kind of become uh, what we, what all of our baristas do. They, um, that, that kind of just mentality of, you know, the, the foundation of super hard work and really giving it your all to make sure that, you know, you're making drinks as fast as possible, but also making sure that you're having a blast while doing it. Daniel was doing that. He's that guy. But during that time, he was working, you know, literally 60 days in a row, open to close 16 hour days because he just had to make it. And, and for yeah. me, for my part, I was always, I've, Daniel's always been on the ground and I've always been the guy kind of in the sky you know, handling the business stuff and, um, you know, the books and the paperwork and the accounts receivable, the accounts payable, the insurance, all that stuff. And for me, you know, there was really no money to pay me. And so I, I, and I ended up, you know, I'd moved on from my dad's job and worked for my father-in-law for a little bit, but then they couldn't pay me either. And so I ended up having to go on unemployment. And I went through this period where I was actually looking for work during the day. And then I would be doing all of the, the business work for BlackRock, you know, at night 
you know, from 9 p.m. to 2 a.m. You know, at the same time, my wife and I had just had our first child. Um, She was born in May of 2009. And, um, you know, this was just a pretty crazy time, you know, 2010, 2011. During that time, where we were able to go out there and, and get some sites that are that we still have today that we pay a great lease rate on and that are great sites that we would have never gotten had it not been for that you know really difficult economic time. So, or, yeah, or you would have gotten them or just paid yeah, 100%, too much for yes, it. Yes, we would have we would have paid exorbitantly more than we would have uh, than, than we have currently. So, yeah, that um, so yeah, that was that was definitely a beneficial thing, and I you know now being where we are now and the lease rates that we pay now, we can look back on those and be, we're pretty happy that that, that kind of happened. And it's kind of one of those weird things where you go, man, I wish that didn't, you know, we didn't have to go through that early time, but at the same time, I wouldn't trade it at all for, for that reason. And also just for the grit that we were able to pick up during those hard times where, you know, we had to give it all. Um, you know, I remember actually there's, there's one story that still sticks out in my brain from, you know, that time. And so this is like, this is probably, you know, um, I want to say like early 2000, this is mid 2009. Um, but we, like I said, for, for me, I'd already been a part of opening one store and, you know, that was, we were working our tails off. We were trying to survive. We knew that we kind of had to push forward the only way out was, you know, kind of through this. And so we'd signed another lease and, uh, then actually another spot came up. And so this is kind of, again, crazy. So we have one store open, we have another lease signed, but we don't even have the building open yet. And then this other great spot came up in Portland that we'd been waiting on for quite a while. So we had to make the call of, do we do this or do we not? Do we pass? And I, <clears throat> pardon me. So I remember that day, um, I had to kind of make that decision of, okay, do we push forward or do we not? And it was, I could not sleep. So I still remember looking up, it's like two 30 in the morning and my wife's asleep in the other room and our couple month old daughter is also asleep. And, you know, I remember got my coat on, went on a walk out in the new neighborhood. And I was just, I just was processed. It was just kind of like this moment of, man, do I really push forward in this? Do we really take the risk and go all in and do this third spot and risk, you know, my dad's, livelihood risk my father-in-law's livelihood you know because they're there there's more money needed to get this open and they don't have any and their businesses are struggling and this is just this amount of risk is huge and that was just definitely a one of those moments where like it was an all-in moment it was this is this is either we're going to either make it or we're going to make it like there's no other options and um yeah, that was a pretty crazy time. And that still sticks out as probably the moment of like the most amount of stress for me of like, you know, this is crazy. So, yeah, so those are the dark times. Um, and then, um, like I said, about 2012-ish, things start getting better. And we actually had the opportunity to kind of change gears a bit. So up to this point, we had done almost exclu- – we actually had done exclusively um, – drive-through only sites so those would be like little kiosks with either one or two drive-through windows so no seating no interior no no you know inside restrooms to manage or or food service pardon me or food service to manage it was only you know our employees would be in this box and the customers would drive through 
And then in 2012, we got the opportunity to take over a couple of old Tully's locations in Vancouver, Washington, where they had both the drive through and the lobby. And um, that was kind of our first thing, you know, foray into, you know, we'd never really thought of going into that. Um, it seemed a little risky to us to, uh, we knew there'd be more labor associated. We knew that maybe a little more difficult and there'd be more to manage inviting customers into the store versus having them just drive through. Right. Um, but those came up and, you know, what struck us was we knew that the, the, you know, there's coffee is so coffee is so personal to everyone. You know, there are to some people getting coffee. Uh, the term getting coffee means, yeah, let's hop in the car. Let's drive down to Black Rock. It is, it's it's a ritual ritual, and it's, and you know, again, but it's so strange because coffee over the years, we've kind of found this out, but coffee belongs in a different place. For instance, if you go to your favorite steak restaurant, you're going there to get exactly what they have on the menu. You almost have in your mind, yeah, I want, man, the the prime rib or the uh, filet mignon at this place is just killer. I love it. And we're going there. With coffee, it's a little different. With coffee, everyone has generally has their own drink. You know, someone has a, I'm a quad shot mocha guy. I'm a I'm an Americano with, you know, cream and sugar. I'm, you know, I love to get my, you know, white chocolate caramel, um, you know, drink. And so what ends up happening and we found in coffee is people, it's, it's a deeply personal thing. And they will go to the coffee shop that best serves them their drink and who they can best connect with. And, and even on top of that, if you also went to different groups of people and said, Hey, let's go get coffee to some people. That means, yeah, let's jump in the car and let's go down. Let's quickly go through the drive through We'll get a smile and we're going to get it quick and then we're on our way to other people. If you said, hey, let's go grab coffee, what they hear and what you mean is, hey, we're going to go down to the coffee shop. We're going to, you know, we're going to go inside. We're going to grab our coffee. We're going to then, you know, sit in the comfy chairs by the fire and we're going to talk for two hours. So it's it's a really interesting thing that we kind of started to realize that, man, it is entirely different. And so we need both we need to be able to serve both of those customers that I just said, we need to have that drive through, but we also need to open up and have, you know, that lobby environment where we invite them in. So yeah, in 2012 ish, that's when we started um, pushing into what we call the drive through sit down model, which we do a lot more of now, um, where, which would be a coffee shop that has both an interior lobby where people can sit down and then also the drive through where people are flowing through. And it's, it's again, interesting because, either group that I kind of just laid out, they're both getting coffee from us from the same place, but their experience of getting coffee is entirely different. And that's okay. That's great. It's we're able to provide that kind of individual um, experience depending on what people want. That's pretty interesting. I mean, <laughs> these days I'm thinking about my morning coffee like the <laughs> night before. Cause like, I'm just like, you know, like I'm like just stuck in my house and I'm like, okay, like, should I walk down to that new coffee shop that opened? Should I make one at home? Should I have an iced coffee, a hot coffee? Like everybody's got their own like routine that yeah. they go through for it. And it's interesting. It's interesting that you say that, that you kind of like, you, you learned that as you went and it was all based on kind of like what, like that, that availability of, of location. You're like, okay, well now we have to start thinking about, you know, catering to a different ritual here. Cause you know, one guy might want to drive through because he's on his work commute and that's like the best time of his day when he can like listen to his talk radio and listen to and drink his coffee. But the other person might want to sit down and sip a latte and read a book or talk to somebody. So you, you, you start to kind of expand that experience level across, 
across customers. I would imagine that kind of helped with with yeah, it did expansion. absolutely. And I think that you know, yeah, you're exactly right. It's catering to the different rituals. And like I said, I think that because we were born in the recession, um, we were almost forced to really take a hard look at at who we were going to be and who we we decided early on we had we we didn't really have the choice of expressing who we were we had to actually take a different tact and say who do our customers need us to be and i think that that still sticks with us to this day to where we were hyper aware like i said of the different rituals and i think for us that's that's what really hit me is i was sitting at one of at our first or i think it was our store number 2 which was the drive-through only, like I said, and there's, you know, the people that are coming through again, their ritual is getting coffee quickly on the way to the job site or on the way to their work or wherever. Uh, but looking to be honest across the way, there was a Starbucks and those people were never coming to me because co- their coffee ritual was entirely different. Getting coffee for them meant I'm going to go and I'm going to go and sit down and I'm going to enjoy this coffee. They, they just never would have thought. Uh, of consciously coming over to me. And right. so, yeah, we had to kind of expand our horizons and to, to take in those different rituals. And I think that comes through every part of, of what we've built about BlackRock. We've tried to build a brand that, um, for lack of a better word, is a bit projectable, um, that serves the customer. You know, if you go to our, you know, our mission statement is fuel your story. And we've we've tried to, and I think that we had to in those early days, set up the customer's story as our ultimate, as our ultimate goal. And so it's not about, you know, that we want to serve you the best, you know, single origin, third wave coffee, and we think you should try it and it's the best. It's no, what do you want? What's important to you? And we're going to build a store and a system and hire baristas that give you the coffee experience that you want. At that time, I think it was probably 2014, um, we decided, hey, let's go take some trips. You know, let's go down to some of these areas, go down to, you know, San Diego, to Phoenix, Arizona, to a couple of other spots, and let's just see what else is out there. And um, so that's kind of what we did. And it was about that time that we, um, coming back from Phoenix, we kind of said, man, you know, it just feels different down here. There's not nearly as much coffee there. And turns out from what I have read, you know, especially back in that time, so this is 2015, there was a quarter as many coffee shops um, than there were in the, in the Northwest. And so wow. that just seemed like, wow, there's a, a lot less competition. That se- you know, it seems like it's our type of customer that's down, down here. Um, it's going to be a big jump. Um, at that time, we only had 30 stores. So uh, pretty, we were a pretty small company to be trying to take on a major metro area with four and a half million people like Phoenix. Um, and so, yeah, but, but we, you know, came back from those trips with the determination to, you know, expand and grow and go to a place where, you know, it seemed like there was a lot of opportunity. And so that kicked us off there. And then, you know, quickly thereafter, we, we started scouting out other places, you know, like Denver, Colorado, and even looking at Texas. So 2016, October of 2016, we opened our first store in uh, Chandler, Arizona. So a suburb of Phoenix. And, um, it went great from, from day one. It was, it was pretty successful right away. It was in a pretty, you know, affluent neighborhood, great neighborhood. It was a great, you know, the, the sun in Arizona and the, the great seasons of, uh, especially, you know, this time of year, honestly, in the winter and fall, fall, winter and spring in Arizona, you just can't get better weather. And, um, 
the vibe down there is so great. People are just happy all the time. And uh, it's just, a, it's an interesting kind of yeah. thing. So yeah, we connected really well with, with uh, the population down there in Phoenix. It grew. And, um, you know, then also to kind of come back, we had some interesting changes in the business where um, my, my brother-in-law and father-in-law, they actually exited the business in um, 2018. So we started with this plan of, I think that we need to consolidate. I think we need to bring everything together, if at all possible. Started with Daniel and I's different groups of stores. We, you know, we started that at, with our dads as well. And we pulled our stores together. And then we started going to some of our key franchisees and saying, hey, guys, you guys have been out there, you know, doing a great job. You've been killing it for BlackRock. You've been with us for eight years. You guys get the culture. We want you to roll up in, into corporate and join us and become, you know, and do what you've been doing for three stores, but help us help us to lead and do that for 30 stores, you know, and then 50 and 80. And um, so we started down that path, you know, mid 2018. And now we've got one large company with, I think, 53 stores uh, with another 30 on the way and uh, all under one company. We still have plenty of franchisees out there, but there is now the majority of stores is one large entity. Uh, and that was, was really interesting because it just changed how the whole company had to run like almost overnight. Um, you know, all the components were there, all the front end of BlackRock was all existing, but it's a real big difference to go from running three and four and five stores to, to having one entity running 53. You know, we went from zero corporate stores to 53 stores. So yeah, it was a wild time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's set us up to, have a pretty bright future and we're pretty excited. And now those little, like I said earlier, the, those pots that were growing individually, if you will, you know, like I said, one franchisee is he's doing well, he's saving money for store number four, you know, that now gets to go into that larger pot to fuel growth in, you know, Texas, you know, and the same thing with that, those, those new leaders that were growing up at each of these franchise groups. Now, instead of, you know, their boss, might have been the their regional manager, if you will, of those three stores, and they really were never going to go anywhere. Now they could go to Texas, they can go to Phoenix, they can. There's a lot more opportunity. There's yeah, a now they ton got more opportunities for everybody, and we were able to kind of really just let everybody go and and really turn everyone loose. So it's been a really fun, fun last couple of years for sure. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack. Some pretty heavy stuff in there. You go from like the family origin story, which you know you alluded to, is like a powder keg, and and then going through the Great Recession. I, I love the way you put it. Is like there's only one way to do it: is charge right through it. And you know you're faced with a couple of obstacles along the way, some big decisions. But um, I, I would imagine it's pretty much sharpened your sword, if you will, for how to deal with pretty much any challenge that could be faced, especially rolling up the franchises and. And, you know, then creating a, a corporate culture, which, which to me sounds like a great way to not only solidify your brand, but also just like grow, grow your uh, loyalty among your, your customers and your employees, which is very hard to do. And I guess kind of pivoting a little bit on, on that and, and then looking back at that experience you had during the Great Recession, where you're only a couple of stores, I mean, now we're in a completely different crisis, right? Especially in the retail world. So over the last call it nine to 12 months that we've been in this pandemic kind of forced lockdown or, you know, various iterations of a lockdown, 
I would, I would guess that your previous experience equipped you really well for dealing with like all the challenges that companies like yours are facing right now. So I, I would love to hear about like how you've been able to weather the storm and, and how maybe some of your either cultural uh, ideals or just your general experience growing the business has prepared you for it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, no, this obviously this coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic has obviously been the biggest, you know, after the great recession, the next great headwind. Right. And um, yeah, it, especially for a service-based company, uh, to be honest, it was terrifying, you know, March of 2020. So yeah, you know, to, to look at how we handle all that, I think you're absolutely right. What we went through in our early days back in the Great Recession definitely prepared us for what came uh, in 2020. Um, one of the things I've kind of, I think, you know, drilled down into like what, what, how we look at the world a little bit differently than some other people I come across that helped us out on this is I think we started with, and again, because we had to, we started with a little different foundation. So we started saying, whatever we're going to do business-wise, whatever our passions are, whatever we care about, we have got to start number one with a business model that works. And what I mean by that is we have to start with, you know, the correct lease rates. We have to start with the correct cost of goods sold. We have to start with a manageable, you know, per labor percentage. We have it has to work at a business level. We have to have a model that actually functions, um, and always drive to keep our costs down, to um, to get to get the most out of each person and each role, and really extend each person's ability to uh, to make a difference for for both the customer. And for kind of that back end stuff um, of cleaning and just efficiencies in the background. So we started with that as the base of our pyramid, if you will. And then again, next level up, we said, you know, again, we can't care about what we're passionate about yet. We have got to care about what the customer wants and what is important to the customer. And so that next level up has always been what, again, fuel their story. What are they about? What's important to them? We have got to build our business, our systems and hire the right people to meet that need. And then if we do those other two things well, only then do we earn kind of what I call the top of our pyramid, which is our ability to, you know, do what we're passionate about, whether that's, you know, coffee related or community related or anything else. If you've done the other two well, then you earn the right to, to express your ideals. And I think that a lot of people, unfortunately, when they go to start a business, if you start a business in maybe better economic times, you can almost in, inverse, you, you can come at that with a, the inverted direction where you start with your ideals or what you're passionate mm. about then you care about what your customers are care about and then only then do you worry about is this actually a viable business we were able to bounce back from that pretty quickly and be able to serve our customers in a safe way keep our employees safe and be able to keep functioning through this pandemic so we bounced back pretty quickly and then we were able to turn construction back on and keep kind of charging forward luckily so yeah it was a very very scary spring of 2020 for sure and definitely i mean it obviously isn't over we still have to kind of you know look out for what's going on and what's the new regulation and what's the new i think that was part of the problem in the beginning was we just had no idea what we were going to have to do for each different area and each area responded differently arizona responded differently than than oregon and washington and texas responded differently than you know we were literally daily having to go through 
you know, deciding and interpreting and deciding a plan of action for each area we were in. Yeah. But yeah, we, we were able to pivot. We were able to take care of our people. We were able to um, take care of our customers. And, you know, it was also one of those times where we, I think, doubled down on, on our culture in that fueling of their stories. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's our mission statement it, and it, but it truly is what guides us. It's, so here's all of our customers where their lives have been massively disrupted. You know, people's kids are not in school. There's a ton of fear out there. There's a ton of uncertainty. People are losing their jobs. And that is, again, the, like you said, the ritual of coffee is interesting because it is about what's in the cup. It's about that coffee that is your drink that you love. But it's also just as much, I think, especially in kind of the current state of the world with social media and everything else, where people connect a lot online, but connect a lot less. It, it seems face to face, you know, our baristas in each store, they're the one where, you know, when you come through, they know who you are. They, they know your name. They know what drink you have. They know you buy your car. They know that, you know, that, um, that your son or daughter had a soccer game last night. I ask how it went, you know, the, it's a place where you're known. It almost goes back to that eighties sitcom cheers, right? Where it's like, everybody knows your name. And I think that, you know, we, we really kind of occupy that space. So during this pandemic, I think people were hungry for that. And that, that was meaningful to us because that was like, we need to be there for our customers. This is the time when the whole world really is under an immense amount of strain. And yeah, we are just a coffee company, but we're also that, you know, that little boost of positivity in everyone's day. And if we can be putting that out into the world, then that's making a difference. That's incredible. Um, so at this point, you know, you've probably got more stores and some are open, some are not, some are some hybrid situation based on the location that they're at. I would imagine part of your calculus when trying to figure all this stuff out boiled a little bit down to decisions on, on, on real estate, whether it was rent related or lease clause related. How do you figure out where there are opportunities to curb costs, talk to landlords, um, find rent relief, just leverage the, the leases that you have to, to better gird the portfolio and, and therefore the business. But talk a little bit about how you've managed the kind of the complexities of, of the real yeah, estate. Yeah, no, hundred percent. That was actually obviously something that we had to tackle right away. <clears throat> so, um, and that's honestly where you guys at Occupier uh, come in and where it was so helpful um, in all honesty to have everything in one place super well organized and we actually have an interesting portfolio as well because like i mentioned we started with these drive-through onlys which you know are little essentially kind of little kiosk they can only be you know i think our smallest one's 120 square feet it's tiny it's in a parking lot and then we have other ones that are you know part of an end cap so a multi-tenant building and then we have others that are standalone um you know, sit down drive throughs that are a larger building, but standalone. So we have a very diverse portfolio and a, and a very diverse set of different terms for the different leases. Like I mentioned earlier, we have some of these legacy leases from the late uh, 2000s and the early 2010s, where honestly, the, the terms of those leases were a lot simpler and less complicated and which is good in some ways but it can, can actually come back and bite you in other ways. When, when a certain situation arises with one of your sites and that's not addressed in the lease, you've got to know that and you've got to be able to, you know, pull that up. And, and so having 
a system like Occupier has been super helpful in, a, in the ability just to in real time, pull something up and know exactly where each lease stands. And especially with now 80 plus leases um, that we even have to manage corporately, like being able to know, okay, this is where this lease stands this is where this lease, because you can't keep that all in your head. And obviously you don't want to waste a ton of time. So, you know, having the different types of leases and the different, you know, complexity of leases um, all in one place is is super nice. Going back to that pandemic time, yes, one of the first things we had to dive into was we didn't know if we would be able to remain open at all. And so obviously that put us along with so many other people in retail and in service into having to have pretty difficult conversations with our landlords of, hey, look, we might be forced by regulation to shut down. And so, you know, that puts us in a place of having to ask for your help, landlord, um, to help give us some relief. And we, you know, so that was a a lot of pretty uncomfortable conversations. And we definitely kicked in that gear. And, you know, our chief legal, Brian, he spent a ton of time on the phone just with each landlord, just talking through this, you know, hey, we never planned for this. You never planned for this, but this is where we are. And we're we're going, like I said earlier, day by day, having to adapt to the new regulations in each area. And so this is where we are. And it was great. It was great to be able to have those, you know, conversations quickly and easily, Um knowing where the leases stood, but then also just counting on the relationship um, with each landlord. And, and we found all of them um, with maybe a few exceptions, um, just being super helpful for us uh, and understanding and saying, Hey, we're going to work with you. We want to keep you guys there. That's awesome. So wrapping up um, what's in the future for you guys. Tell us a little bit about, you know, post pandemic and, and plans for, <laughs> yeah, well, like you said, um, world domination, you know, we've had, it's, it's again interesting because we're a 13 year old company, but in its current state, we're a two year old company. So it's really, it, it's been an interesting flow. So um, what, what the future looks like for us is, is to just kind of keep doing what we're doing on, on the small scale. And that seems obviously kind of uninteresting, but what's kind of nice is I like to say that we've built a, a pretty good airplane at this point. We've gone through the 13 years of, of, you know, refinement on what our business model looks like, you know, whether that be cost side or revenue side or marketing side. And we've got a pretty good system of how to keep the energy of this, of this thing going. And so we, we now can take that. Uh, we've, like I said, we've built a pretty good airplane. Now it's just having enough fuel to fly as high as we can. And, um, what that looks like for us is just kind of charging forward in the markets that we already are and then looking forward to the markets, you know, that, that we could possibly open. Right now, we're, we're doing pretty well with the markets we have. Um, I think we we have somewhere in the neighborhood of like 40 million people. Um, you know, we serve markets. Um, how would I say this? Let's see. So we've there. Are, there's about 40 million people in the markets that we currently serve. Um and so we can kind of, we've got a couple of years worth of expansion to do in the markets that we already have open. Um, but then we'll start looking for more and more. We also try to never look at too large of a macro scale. We always look at everything at a pretty local scale. What I mean by that is, because we've been asked this by developers sometimes, it's like, well, you're coming to Houston. You know, Houston, I think has 9 million people, Houston metro area. It's like, well, how are you one small coffee company intending to come in and, you know, take the market of Houston. And our response to that is, well, we don't need to take the entire market of Houston. 
we just are going to go to Katy, Texas. We're going to open one store and we're going to invest in that community. We're going to invest in the high school down the road and the high school down the other road. And we're going to invest in, you know, the hospital up the road. We're going to take care of those uh, frontline uh, health workers. We're going to be that community's coffee shop. And that's all we need to do. And so that we kind of take that viewpoint versus a, a super high level we're going all these places. We're going to keep looking for the communities that we can fit into where we can become a part of their community. We can be their local coffee shop and we can have, um, like I said earlier, that direct relationship with that loyal group of customers that are going to come through every day. So on the small scale, like that's it. It's we're going to keep growing in those areas on the bigger scale. You know, obviously we have a lot of hopes, hopes and dreams of, you know, keeping going. And like you said, world domination and, um, but we have if we keep doing the small thing, then we'll be able to, to keep going on the big end. And for us, I think at this point, it's having that great balance of a company that we can be super proud of. Like I said earlier, those being able to churn out great leaders, um, pouring into our customers and fueling their story and um, and then just slowly growing and making the the the, the footprint of BlackRock just continue to continue to slowly expand and serve more people. So yeah, it's weirdly enough, we don't really have a, a super large goal of, you know, we want to be here, you know, in X years and that kind of a thing. We want to just do what we're doing and do it well and do it for as many people as possible. And um, if we do that, then we'll have a lot of options at the end of the day. Well, Jeff, it's been a pleasure hearing the story and, uh, learning about the origin and, and how awesome you guys have uh, been able to kind of grow your, your brand and your business. Thanks so much for your time. And, you know, personally really look forward to continuing work with your company and absolutely. Uh, it was a pleasure. Back on, yeah, thanks very much. And you know, in the future, we're super thankful for you guys, honestly, like we looked at a lot of different options for how to manage something as complex as our real estate portfolio. And you guys have built an incredibly good product. And I mean, that's, that's just shooting straight. Um, it works incredibly well and we're super thankful that we found you. Awesome. Well, we're, we're, we're thankful we found you too. And thanks you too. Best of luck in 2021, Jeff.